maybe this is your job. You're doing this every single day. You're passing by hundreds of families, you know, within a month or two, but that your actions can really change somebody's life forever. I know that I did that. And I know that I did that in a not so great manner. We really have to understand that people living in poverty get enough blame and very often are shamed walking through the doors of various animal organizations and other organizations. And that's because we are looking at them through stereotypes that we've learned. Welcome to The Deal with Animals. I'm Marika Bell, anthrozoologist, CPDT certified dog trainer, and an animal myself. This is a podcast about the connection and interaction between humans and other animals. Today's episode, we're going to dig a little deeper into the area of humane law enforcement. This is the traditionally punitive side of animal protection and animal welfare, and is sometimes, but not always, connected directly to a municipal animal shelter, or as in decades past, was often referred to as the pound. In movies, the pound is often portrayed in an extremely negative light, and in many cases, unfortunately, that was probably an accurate depiction. I myself have met what used to be called dog catchers who really embraced the stereotype. But this is not the norm these days, at least not in progressive municipal animal shelters. And in fact, there are programs like the Pets for Life program, which we've referred to in past episodes, that are really trying to take on a very different approach to humane law enforcement. So we're going to talk to one of the people who started her career as an animal control officer and went on to leading one of these Pets for Life teams. Let me introduce you to Ashley Anderson Much, a dedicated advocate and senior program manager of enforcement and policy reform at Pets for Life. With a passion for social justice and animal welfare, Ashley collaborates with organizations nationwide to tackle disparities in policies that unfairly impact underserved communities and communities of color. By recognizing the intersectionality between animal welfare, historical oppression, and institutional discrimination, she aims to foster a broader understanding of these interconnected issues. Ashley's commitment extends to partnering with municipal shelters and local animal enforcement teams, where she champions community-oriented support strategies. Her background as a former humane law enforcement officer in Philadelphia lends her a unique perspective on promoting positive change. Now, this episode was recorded nearly a year ago, and we had a heck of a time scheduling, but we were eventually able to coordinate our schedules, and after a long, 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 long wait, it's now time. This is the perfect episode to include in this series, The World of Animal Welfare. But before we start, I just want to remind you that we've started a newsletter at TDWA, and if you want to get access to sneak peeks into episodes, helpful links, and bonus content, then go to thedealwithanimals.com and sign up. Okay, now on to the show. Would you please introduce yourself and share your pronouns? Sure. My name is Ashley Anderson Much. I'm a senior program manager of enforcement and policy reform with the HSUS Pets for Life program. And my pronouns pronouns are she, her, hers. Thank you very much. So tell us a little bit about your background and what you do for HSUS. Yeah. So I started in animal welfare, oh, just over 10 years ago. I actually was a humane law enforcement officer in Philadelphia and in the state of Pennsylvania and several counties. 
after doing that for several years, I actually was approached by the then manager of the Pets for Life program in Philly. And we were talking about kind of the goals of Pets for Life. And it was something that I had been thinking about in my current position as a humane officer, but could not figure out how to put that into a a career. And some of the goals that he was talking about really resonated with me. And I was really interested and took the position as the manager for the Philadelphia Pets for Life program. Back That was back in 2012. Yeah, I remember that because I went and visited you up in Philadelphia. I know. Yeah. It was a really eye-opening experience and lots of lots of fun. Yeah. And it's definitely obviously grown since that was what, almost 10 years ago. Yeah. It was 10 years ago. <laughs> it's hard to imagine. Yep. So so then what are you doing right now? So right now, um, my title is is focusing on talking to enforcement teams, animal control officers, humane law enforcement, or even local police officers in various cities across the country where we have our Pets for Life program and talking about other options when it comes to enforcement, maybe being a bit less punitive, maybe when punishment is appropriate and when it's not. And then additionally, looking at kind of the little P of policy work, maybe internal policies that disproportionately and negatively impact underserved communities or communities of color and how we can make changes and really reflecting on the fact that many of these policies and practices are archaic, decades and decades old, or there are few regulations with enforcement practices. And a lot of it is just based on the discretion of each individual officer and and maybe how they perceive the law to read. So take us through a little bit. What is the difference and definition between humane law enforcement and animal control? There's so many different words for a very similar position. Yeah. So I think also frequently and recently we hear it uh, referred to as field services I think the field is expanding a bit with enforcement practices or similar. So uh, I may refer to it as field services along the way too. But generally for where I was working, animal control, they are enforcing more local ordinances that may pertain to smaller infractions like a dirty yard, a barking dog complaint. There can be some enforcement around insufficient shelter sustenance, that type of thing. Uh, Normally those are written as more of a a ticket. And then with humane law enforcement, I was sworn in with full police powers. And so I could only enforce the state statute for animal cruelty, but it was the same statute that regular police officers could enforce as well. But that gave me powers to obtain a search warrant, seize property, create inventory lists, and then press charges from a summary level offense to a felony level offense. What are the typical punishments for these sorts of things? A lot of it is surrounding fines, fees of various sorts, prohibition of ownership of animals. You know, there could be some compromising if it's discussed to have a owner surrender so that pets are not held on as a court case hold, which could last for years as as cases continue. And then it could go all the way up to jail time. 
And what kind of infraction would someone actually have to to commit for jail time at this point? And it, I know it's different depending on where you're living. Sure. Yeah. So usually you're going to see combined offenses or multi-level offenses. Maybe there's a combination of a lack of veterinary care charge combined with lack of sustenance charge. You know, it can, it really can vary if you have a high number of, of animals and I bring a hundred charges, which I've done before all for the same thing, wow. lack of vet care, you know, it just raises the level of the offense. Right. How do animal welfare policies affect the humans in that community then? So what, why are you trying to change things? So policies were written kind of looking through the lens where, you know, obviously animal welfare's foundation is just to help the helpless, be a voice for the helpless, you know, find justice for the helpless. I don't think it's until recently, you know, over the past decade really been looked at through a social justice lens understanding that we have families living in poverty and understanding access to care issues that come along with that. So policies are written in a way that don't take that into consideration. And so if we create something that's mandatory or we're enforcing a policy that requires somebody to resolve something within two weeks, but that is going to cost them $100, we're not really taking the time to understand poverty and how that is just impossible for a family to maybe right the wrong that they're being accused of. So when we don't take that into account, we're inevitably just immediately punishing tons of families and tearing families apart because the only solution in the past has been to seize that animal and quote unquote, save it from the situation instead of understanding why affording a dog house or taking a dog to the vet because it looks thin or is having some minor medical issues is, is really a, a far reach or impossible for many families. So then how, how does law enforcement come into solving those problems? I mean, a lot of people would say, well, law enforcement's just there to enforce the law and it really isn't, isn't their purview to, to solve the poverty problem. Yeah, you know, it's it's important for, I think, new trainings for enforcement officers to have an understanding of poverty before they go into the field and start doing their work. Enforcement has historically been a reactive field where we're getting the call, they're going in, they're trying to fix what's going on, and, and the only option to fix it has been through punitive measures, typically. So by working with animal welfare organizations, a lot of the enforcement teams are housed within the same organization as a Humane Society or SPCA that have all these other pet retention programs or safety net programs. And so kind of integrating those other programs into the work that they do helps to save time. But with with enforcement teams understanding poverty and understanding their communities a bit more, it's going to give them a different viewpoint on how they can approach a certain situation. Instead of looking at a thin dog and saying, this is absolutely cruelty, they can look at a thin dog and say, well, let me talk to the owner. Could this possibly be a case of worms? And the pet owner couldn't afford it because generally a few photos and a a citation is enough to win a court case because 
that's really all that it it takes. So it's really changing the conversation and giving another resource to enforcement teams to utilize. And it seems to me too that the process of relationship building with law enforcement and the community is something that's really focused on right now, not just around animal issues, but really overall and in general, there really is a a want and a need for law enforcement officers to be more community oriented, less punitive and more, more socially part of the community. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely that's a huge part of the conversation. And I think another thing to remember when we are looking at community oriented policing or more proactive enforcement practices is to remember the historical relationship between communities of color and the police and enforcement agencies or any agency that has sort of that authoritative power. You know, it's something that's been, I think, for lack of a better term, it's, it's been ignored when we look at these new programs we're starting to run and saying, well, why aren't people partaking in this? We're, we're going out there, the police are handing out free dog food, but people still don't want it, or they're still not really interested in having a conversation. It's understanding almost generational trauma that comes along with enforcement interactions. And so while it's great that I think we're taking these steps to work towards community policing, Even something like a patrol vehicle that has community policing slapped on the side of it can still be a bit daunting rolling through a neighborhood that doesn't have a good relationship with enforcement. So there are are small things along the way. I think that opening up to having these conversations and, you know, part of the work that I do is sharing that with enforcement teams that are a bit frustrated that what they're doing is not working or they're not seeing it impact as much as they had hoped. It's just remembering it's just not the here and now. It's it's really the past, the present and what's to come for the future. Yeah, I can. I mean, my, my mind just goes to the idea of, oh, the police are giving out free dog food just to find out, you know, who has dogs that come and check on right. those dogs later. You know, that that sort of gotcha mentality that people sometimes feel like they're being set up. Yeah. Yeah. The bait and switch. What's the catch? You know, we get that conversation a lot through just pets for life and we're not even in, uh, re- working with enforcement in any way. But it's the idea that it's almost, you know, too good to be true, but something has happened before where that bait and switch came into play. And so it's, again, something to understand going into community oriented policing or just community outreach work in general when you're talking to a community that's been neglected and oppressed in many ways. Yeah. I mean, even now, I mean, I, I used to think, and again, as for people who don't know me or see me, I'm a middle-aged white woman. Like my interactions with police have always been, you know, pulled over for tickets and I have a little tears and then I get off and I don't usually have to pay the ticket, that sort of thing. (laughs) And, 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 you know, the tears are super real. I get really upset when I'm when I'm faced with someone in authority. But but the times I have had to pay tickets are the times I'm caught with a camera, not the times when I have actually talked to somebody one on one. And even with those relatively benign interactions with law enforcement that both me and my husband are familiar with, 
there was a patrol officer at the local park who was patrolling outside the park, pulling people over, and then happened to just sort of come in, say hi to the kids, give out stickers, let them get on on his bike. And my husband was super suspicious. He's like, what is this guy doing? Like, this seems weird that he, you know, is coming in for a quick community chat after like giving out all these tickets right outside the park. Like it, it just even to him felt like what's the catch? And and the guy was giving out stickers, like it was no big deal. But for a community that has a lot more history with with negative interactions with police, I, I, I can't imagine, you know, the uphill battle it must be to try to change that perception. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it it's it's something that when we are training new groups, you know, we talk about patience and understanding that while you're out there thinking what you're doing is this fantastic, you know, service that we're bringing to communities that are in an access to care desert, that the, the desire to use or utilize those services is great, but the trust is not quite there yet because you know, of that bait and switch, you know, and if it's, if it's happened once, if it's happened to someone they know, you know, everyone kind of wants to just dip their toes in the water a little bit and see what's going on, but it still doesn't feel like, you know, it's, it's real. And it's kind of a sad, it's a sad thing to experience when you're out there. And I realize, you know, the, although I am a, you know, I'm an Asian woman, there's so much privilege in not being black or brown walking around in a neighborhood that's been historically negatively impacted by by some practices. Yeah. And how was that for you being part of law enforcement? Yeah. Oh, that is a loaded question. <laughs> you know, I've I've felt a lot of guilt. I felt a lot of regret over the years. One of the first conferences where I spoke about an alternative to strictly punitive measures, I just kind of broke down crying, you know, and couldn't get myself together for the first 10 minutes because I believed stereotypes and I was trained in a certain way that this area of town or this area of the city, it's always bad. People are always bad here. It's dangerous. And I was never taught that it was more so an issue of poverty and understanding poverty at that depth. So, you know, I've, I've definitely broken up families. I've definitely taken pets away that have been there their entire lives and have seen those pets get euthanized at the shelter instead of having a conversation and, keeping those families together and understanding, oh, you couldn't afford to go to the vet. Oh, I know why you couldn't afford to go to the vet. It was just a strictly punitive outlook. So while my past in enforcement leaves me feeling almost shameful and and guilty, it certainly has helped shape the way that I work today and the way that I hope to impact other enforcement teams. And how are you working with animal welfare organizations? So through the the Pets for Life program, typically we're bringing this program to them and training them on how to 
do community outreach and bring access to services and remove barriers for pet owners living in poverty. We're working with with animal control agencies or humane law enforcement agencies to partner and work on where we focus the program and if they run into a situation where they may not feel like this is true cruelty, then they can refer out to the Pets for Life program. Maybe it's an issue with spay neuter. Maybe it's a basic wellness issue. And then we can have that turned over to us and then they can clear that from their case file and move forward from there. So we're we're really collaborating, looking to partner in any way that we can that helps to provide support rather than punishment if it's not warranted in that situation and, you know, and, and have that really holistic approach with everything. And what communities are you currently working in? I mean, it's not just you, it's got to be a group of people, right? And you're, you're all over the U.S., I'm assuming? Yes. Oh, yes. We're all over the place. We're in about 50 cities all over the country. Plus, we have cities that we've mentored and trained, maybe not fully with the Pets for Life program, but they've looked for some tips and tricks along the way. For a, a plug, you can go to humanesociety.org backslash pets for life and you'll see our map of exactly where we're working. I'll put the link for that in the show notes. And I took a quick look myself. And if you scroll down just a couple of clicks, you'll see the map and you can zoom in and out and see exactly where Pets for Life is at the moment. But we're in urban, rural, suburban communities. We are working on Native American reservations. We're working on the most remote villages along the YK Delta in Alaska, just creating access to pet services so we can keep more families together. Yeah, that is great. And I, I've i been recently spending some time in Ocean Shores, which is this rural coastal town in Washington state. And I'm on the, of course, as you do, you join the Facebook chat when you're spending a lot of time somewhere <laughs> and learn what that community is like. You can learn so much, good and bad. But somebody was, was asking where the closest emergency vet was because their friend's dog had just been hit by a car. Mm. And the responses, which it got a lot of, were basically there are none. And when you have a situation like that, like it's not even about poverty. It's about where you live. You know, this guy could pay for vet services. He just needed a vet in the area. Yeah. You know, you know, an hour and a half away is not good enough, even if the vet was willing to take him, which they weren't. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it it's telling when when maybe financially it's not an obstacle and you know you're you're calling all over the place and you're able to provide those services for your pet and you still can't find anything. You know, for our for our underserved communities, it's calling those places is not even an option. Driving an hour and a half is not even an option. You know, all around it's an issue especially in rural areas, but even if you live in a rural area, you have transportation and you have the financial capability, there are hundreds and thousands of, of pet owners living in the same type of situation or scenario that there's just nothing. There, that's not even a, a thought to be able to do that. So it's it's working hard to connect to as many groups. We've we've started to work with some non-animal welfare groups just to connect and say, hey, you know, we're here. This is what we're doing and find ways to balance those gaps in services and help each other when people come to the program looking for something that they 
they can't access on their own. Yeah, it's just surprising, I think, for a lot of people to hear that that access isn't there. Yeah. You know, they just kind of assume if they've already, if they've always been in a community that has access, that the idea of not having access, of having to drive for three hours or even getting on a bus when you don't have a car with your dog, which isn't allowed in a lot of places, how do you even get them to that access? Again, even if you do have the money to pay the vet and the vet is available, like getting them there is, is a huge deal for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we look at that a lot. We always talk about barriers because transportation is a huge one. And with our program, that's something that we, it's a non-negotiable at this point that if we're starting up a Pets for Life program, we have to provide that transportation because it's just, it's just crucial in kind of closing that gap of access. It's not just telling somebody about an event. It's not just inviting them to a free event. It's not just that an event might be five blocks away there are barriers that we, uh, things I still come across in my work, you know, after 10 years that I'm still like, oh yeah, that's something I've never had to think about, or I've never Googled a solution for that because it's never impacted me in that way. So Mm -hmm. I think if, if someone's living in a rural area and they're having issues with access and they have the means to try and get somewhere, they could maybe understand it a little bit more than those of us that haven't been faced with even that, that have the means and understanding how much harder it could be for somebody without, without the means to transport or pay for that. Yeah. That embodied empathy is an important aspect of our community building, I think overall, and just understanding each other, even when we're so far away. Yeah. Do cultural attitudes come into it as well with enforcement? In terms of what is, you know, what people think that an animal needs? Yeah. You know, I think it's the the diversity in communities and the differences of cultures, I just think is a beautiful thing. But unfortunately, through enforcement practices and the way that I think we've learned to handle situations or look at animal caretaking it's very, um, it, it, we're missing a lot. We're not looking at how different cultures house pets or how they believe they should be spending their time sleeping, not in a king size bed, but they have a little pile of hay outside and that's how they did it growing up and understanding that we have all of these differences. What we can do is share information on keeping something a little bit cooler in the summer or warmer in the winter. But I think that if we can expand that lens that we're looking at pet ownership through by acknowledging different cultures, we can make a big impact with how we're doing the work as well. Cultural competency has come up a bit in, in some of my past episodes and learning that competency, having each animal control officer learn that cultural competency sounds like a, a huge undertaking. And yeah, I, I applaud you for attempting that as part of your program. Yeah, it's, you know what, it's, it's taking a wide lens. And at some point, we can narrow that down. But even just talking about cultural competency is new, is new to field services, it's new to enforcement officers to hear, and it's new to have that 
being implemented as a part of their day-to-day work. You know, look through the lens of support, look through the lens of cultural competency and see how you can do your work better or more effectively. So let me ask you, you, you've done quite a few talks at like HSUS Animal Care Expo, but I've heard you talk for a whole workshop on this subject. What are your favorite parts of that to talk to people about? What, What do you get from that? You know, I, first of all, just love talking about another option because what I've run into over the years talking to folks is just that they're like, well, what else am I supposed to do? That's the question. What, how can I do this differently? The other thing I like to point out all the time is that cruelty is absolutely real. It's there. It happens, but it's just not as pervasive as I think the industry has led everyone to believe. So when I talk about before, before I really got into things in the beginning, I was talking anecdotally a lot, my experiences, sharing stories, how I could have done it differently. And from there, I really started to develop talking points around how we can make some changes internally with how we're training a team, how we're writing job descriptions, how we're maybe implementing social worker into some of the some of the the best practices and then of course the networking I've discussed I think being able to give people insight and hope that there is a different way to do things with something to actually these action items to hold on to and and go back and start implementing it's been fun to see what evolves out of that with some of these organizations because it can completely change kind of the morale, right? That's going on if day in and day out, you're enforcing hundreds of caseloads and that list continues to grow. It's like, when will this end? And I think inherently we are all meant to be good, helpful people. And that's really what we want to do in this field, especially in enforcement. And this is a way to tap into that even more And remember that there's a human behind these pets. And oftentimes that human really is struggling with other things that we could never even imagine going through on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, giving new perspectives, giving action items. I enjoy that because I can hear about it later. I can hear that I told a great story and that it really impacted somebody, but I can... I can also look at some metrics and see like, wow, you implemented these changes and look at your cases and how you've resolved them and, and, you know, how there isn't a recurring incident with the same house that you've had on your list for five years because we fixed a hole in the fence. Yeah. As simple as fixing a hole in the fence can, can make a huge difference. Yeah. We have an at-large dog. It gets out. It gets returned to the owner. It gets out again because the initial problem wasn't fixed. Maybe we didn't talk about it. The return to owner fees are high. And doing that time and time again is exhausting. And it really takes up time for an officer to focus on what they may really need to be putting their energy into. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it it makes so much sense. You wonder why it wasn't done before. It's It, it makes sense. I can only talk about really the way that I was trained is why it makes sense because it was, I was not trained as an enforcement officer to 
be as solution oriented for the whole picture or for the whole family. It was get that animal out of there as soon as you can. And people will clap as you walk through the back door with that surrendered animal. And then on the flip side, we'll all panic about where to put that animal because we're overcrowded, how to place that animal and, you know, how to find a new family. I was never told that, like, let's try to keep it with its family because this is something that's more of an access to care issue than a, an animal cruelty issue. The one thing that that sticks with me and I get goosebumps every time is when I was told by certain people I was investigating I am not cruel to animals. I was told that so many times and I'm sitting here like, well, yes, you are because your dog is skinny. And if I had a different experience or more information with training and more options, I would have done a lot of things differently. I think it's important for people to understand that maybe this is your job. You're doing this every single day. You're passing by hundreds of families, you know, within a month or two, but that your actions can really change somebody's life forever. I know that I did that. And I know that I did that in a not so great manner. Had someone taken my old dog away from me and pressed charges on me for something that was just a mammary mass that like really didn't matter. I would never forget that. And it may impact how I owned pets, or I may not want to own a pet because that was so painful. So while it may not be a situation similar to that, we really have to understand that people living in poverty get enough blame and very often are shamed walking through the doors of various animal organizations and other organizations. And that's because we are looking at them through stereotypes that we've learned. Unconscious bias, implicit bias, all of these things are important to acknowledge within ourselves and really unlearn and look at things differently. You don't want to be the person that doesn't acknowledge and does not adapt and really hurt somebody in the process of, of what you're trying to do. You know, I, I think it's also important to understand that reactions come in all different shapes and sizes. So if someone treats you negatively, they're angry at you, they probably have a pretty good reason to be angry and to express themselves that way. So, you know, really taking a step back to reflect on how am I working? Who am I impacting? And how can I do it a little bit better next time? So if there was a book you could share with all of the listeners, what book would that be? You know, that's funny. I was going to go one direction and say oh, a, a more academic type book, but I've been reading, you know, when I can between having a three-year-old. In my free time is a book called The House in the Cerulean Sea by TJ Klune. It's fun. It's like a little bit of fantasy, but he mixes in social issues in a more whimsical, less heavy way. You know, and I think there's a lot of heavy stuff to see every day on social media or read in the news. And it's a good escape, but not completely. And looking at social issues and how someone might be writing a, a book about confronting those and having conversations about them. I feel like 
I don't think this one has come up in the podcast before, but I feel like I heard about it on NPR or something. So it sounds like one I'm going to have to pick up. Yeah, we, he's yeah. got he's got a couple. There's another one I, I haven't started, but I've heard under the whispering door. I'm just looking at it here. It's supposed to be good as well. So and what what was the academic book that you were thinking about? You know, here I am again. I have like right above me where I'm talking to you is like oh, this whole thing of just books, books and books stamped from the beginning, I think is, is an important read. And then I have just a lot of social justice books, you know, evicted talking about housing issues, the new Jim Crow, really mm. important reads to have under your belt, especially in this work. And as we're trying to progress as an industry and, and as humans, but, but yeah, I mean, that list is probably endless. And sometimes to be honest, like I just want a 20 minute escape to read and kind of step out of, of the reality when it's, it's kind of hard sometimes. Yeah. That's the kind of book I like to read on an airline too. When you're on the airplane and you're already feeling some anxiety about being on an airplane and traveling, then just something that helps you sort of think about something else for a while. I don't, yeah. can't read an academic book when I'm on an airplane because I just can't focus as well as I need yeah. to for that. Yeah. Yeah. So would you share an early formative childhood memory of your connection with animals? Oh yeah. So it goes back to begging my parents for a dog, you know, of course what kids do for years. I did not get that dog till I was seven, but I did get a hamster and it was like the first thing I had to take care of. So I was really excited to be so responsible. But I remember holding her in my hands and she immediately fell asleep. And my mom had remarked like, well, your hands are just so warm and she probably feels so loved. She's comfortable and she just, she fell asleep. And at that point I was just like, wow, these are like mystical, magical beings. I was like, that's so crazy that I'm this kid and I can help comfort this, this little hamster. But it really made me fall in love with, with animals at that point and have them become a huge part of my life. That first connection with an animal that it really feels like an animal has connected with you back. And sometimes these childhood Memories are very one-sided occasionally where it's just my, I saw this or I saw that. And, and occasionally those ones where people talk about the animal actually connecting with them is, yeah. is those are the best. Cause yeah. yeah, that's, I think that's such a, such a strong thing to happen when you're a kid. Yeah. Yep. I agree. hundred Amazing when you're a, a grown up, but yeah, that first time <laughs> having that happen is pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. So, Ashley, what's the deal with animals? Oh, man, another loaded question. You know what? They're, they're exciting. They're unexpected. And I think they know the answers to a lot of things we don't. But they teach us in some way how to be better all the time. And I think they really teach us the true meaning of just love and and compassion for one another. And it's something people should probably look at a little bit more deeply when they're connecting with their, their pet that's sitting right next to them. 
thank you so much for taking the time. And wow, it took a long time to get us to connect and finally <laughs> do this recording. Like so long, probably yep. probably the longest it has ever taken just because of life and babies and hectic schedules. So thank you so much for being so flexible. Oh, likewise. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this with you too. It's, it's something that, you know, I love to talk to others about, get all different types of perspectives, but share what I know too. That was Ashley Anderson Much, Senior Program Manager of Enforcement Policy Reform with Pets for Life at the Humane Society of the United States. Ashley reminds us that fostering compassion in both animal welfare and society at large is a shared journey towards a more inclusive and equitable world. Thank you for joining me as we try to answer the question, what's the deal with animals? I'm your host, Marika Bell. I'd like to thank Kai Stranskoff for the theme music and Natasha Matsart for sharing her skills to help grow the podcast. You can see links to guest book recommendations as well as their websites and affiliated organizations in the show notes and at thedealwithanimals.com. This podcast was produced on both historical tribal land of the Snoqualmie and Quinault Indian nations. The Deal with Animals is part of the IROR Animal Podcast Network.